0: Hello, everyone! Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You are listening to The Financials Edition, taped today on Monday, November 21st, 2016. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me in the studio is, well, I guess technically over the phone, is John Maxfield, one of The Motley Fool's top financials correspondents. Hey, Maxfield, how's it going?
1: It's going great, Gabby. It's, it's good to finally reconnect. I mean, it's been like, what, like a month and a half or two months, I feel like, since, we, since we've since we been on the show together.
0: That is true. I'm also super happy to be back. <laughs> and in case you're wondering why, listeners, you can listen to last week's episode, or two weeks ago, two weeks ago's episode. Um, so, today today's show is about Donald Trump and banks. And um, having said that, I want you guys to know that this show is not about politics. Like, the Molly Fool doesn't have an official stance, and we never will. Um, so, please don't email me angrily. Um, <laughs> but having said that, uh, we do feel like we should report on how potential policy changes could affect the stock market in general, and for this show, the banking sector in particular. And I don't know if you've noticed, but after the election, um, the KBW Banking Index, which tracks how banks are doing at large, is about is up about 14% since November 8th, which is a lot for banks. <laughs> um so in general, uh there's there's a there's a reason for this and it's cuz in general people think that the Trump administration is going to be very positive for banks, right Maxfield?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, here's what's interesting is that you know, going into the election, a lot of people were thinking that stocks, if Trump were elected, that stocks were going to fall precipitously. But actually the exact opposite happened, which creates this really interesting um, kind of irony because here you have a Republican, and and you know, we'll kind of get into all these different reasons. But one of the one of the reasons that stocks went up so much, and bank stocks in particular, is because here you have a Republican coming out and being really, really pro-growth. Uh, economically, but not in terms of just reducing regulations, but in terms of massive fiscal expenditures. And so, you know, just when you're looking at the market overall and why it, why it's gone in that direction, I mean, you know, that, that's one of the reasons.
0: Yeah, and so part of the reasons, part of the reason that that stocks kind of dropped during the election and right before is because there's so much volatility. They didn't know who was going to be president, and um, it seems it seemed unclear like what would happen if either one would become president um, so let's talk about what the Trump administration has said. I will say that um, sometimes the Trump administration has said uh, differing things on the same topic, so we will do our best to cover that um, it's we'll, we'll just try our best okay uh, I mean everyone knows that campaign promises and like what actually happens. Um, Sometimes don't a hundred percent line up. So again, like we're covering what they said during the campaign, what's coming out now, and um, having said that, we also know that we don't really a hundred percent know what's going to happen when Trump becomes president. Like it's always a roll of the dice. Especially living in D.C., you know that Congress um, sometimes pushes things through and sometimes says, "Ha ha, no thank you." Um, so you never really know what is actually going to happen, despite whatever campaign promises. Were given, you know.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, and you know, to to dig into you know banks in particular, you know, this is you know the financials podcast. I'm a banking guy. Uh, you're an editor of a financial bureau. Like, you, you know, one of the biggest questions is what what are the exact reasons that have caused investors to bid up bank stocks so far since Donald Trump was elected? And you know, Gat when we were talking about this before the show, Gabby, we had kind of identified. You know, three different reasons. And the first, as I had kind of alluded to already, is that, you know, Trump has come out and said, like, look, one of his principal priorities is to get the economy growing at a much faster pace. And, you know, again, they haven't provided a ton of details around their ideas in this regard, but we can kind of I think we can break it down into three different things in terms of, you know, their attempt to spur the economy. The first is that, they are uh, recommending a huge infrastructure project, a huge investment in the infrastructure. And which when is, you say
0: huge, when you say huge, you mean a trillion dollars, which is yeah. a lot of money,
1: a lot yeah, of I mean, money. They're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're talking about just absolutely huge numbers. And he, and the great thing is or, I don't know, great is probably not the right adjective, but again, it's it's an irony because what we're talking about here is a full throated embrace. Of Keynesian economics, which suggests that the way to get an economy out of a, out of its funk is through higher government expenditures, and of course that has been anathema to the Republican Party ever since basically Keynes recommended that in the 1930s. Um,
0: yeah, it's been interesting because the Republicans have like pretty consistently recommended infrastructure bills, um, but then like it's never really gotten through Congress. Because the funding for it is always kind of in the air, and that is one thing with this infrastructure project is that not a lot of details on how the funding will appear have have come forward have come forth yet. So um, we'll see how how that happens when when we get more details on the the bill
1: that he's going to have I, to construct. Yep. I'll, I'll say this, Gabby, I'll, is that you know there. One of the things that we know from the finan- from the Great Depression, from the financial crisis is that, you know if you want to lurch the economy back onto that higher growth trajectory, that you do need the government in there. And right now, what does that mean? That would mean that you would have to borrow a bunch of money to then underlie these infrastructure projects. And so the reason the Republican Party has traditionally been against these types of things is because, um, first of all, they there, t- tend to be more in favor of smaller government, which would go against you know huge infrastructure projects that are financed by the government. And secondarily, because there's you know f- over the past you know number of years, there's been all this conversation about you know uh, out of control government debt. And if you're going to come in with a, a trillion dollar infrastructure project, you're going to have to finance that with debt. But but here's the flip side of that, and this is the point that Trump's campaign team. Uh, does understand, and that is that if you're going to borrow at any point in time, there is no better to borrow for these types of things than right now because interest rates are so low. I mean, you look at the ten-year Treasury uh, yield is just above two percent. I mean, think about how cheap that is for a government to borrow. So you know, to the extent that uh, they are recommending a huge infrastructure project, uh, you know, certainly their timing is auspicious uh, from the perspective of the cost of debt
0: yeah definitely. Um, and as part of the the this trillion dollar plan, um um, I know that they that they had mentioned something about a temporary moratorium on taxes for profits earned abroad from companies. Is that correct?
1: yeah, I mean, i I, I don't know where exactly that idea originated, but it is now out there um that one of the things that may happen under a Trump administration, is that they so right now if you have a company like Apple, right? Apple makes you know just tens and tens of billions of dollars selling iPhones, iPads, things like that in other countries. Well, the problem is that when Apple does that, it makes all this money out there, but it can't bring that money back into the United States without paying an additional tax. So that basically keeps this money captive in, in outside of the country. So it can't be brought in to, for investments and for distributing it to the shareholders and things like that. Well, a, a really, you know, if you're thinking about this in terms of low-hanging fruit and an easy way to spur the economy in the United States, one way would just, and we've done this, in the you know administrations have done this in the past. One way to do that is to just give a temporary moratorium on those repatriation taxes, so that all that money can flood into the U.S. economy and then go out and and you know uh, finance further business investments or being distributed to shareholders who can then go out and spend the money.
0: Right, and that would that money still be taxed when it like as part of the 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 company's overall like balance sheet or whatever income once it comes back into the country it just wouldn't have that extra repatriation tax on it correct
1: right and I think that repatriation tax I I and I'm not an expert on this but it's my understanding that what that is is that look Apple paid a, an income tax on that income in these foreign jurisdictions when it earned it and then what the what the tax coming back in the United States would be is that it would basically then be the corporate income tax in the United States so you'd be facing a, a corporate tax, tax here, tax. exactly, exactly. So the the idea is that the moratorium gets rid of. They would just have to face that foreign foreign income tax.
0: Well, in that case, I guess we can't look at those taxes to help fund this infrastructure project. Um, <laughs> um, on the other hand, uh, one of the, not having that, um, or the infrastructure, the infrastructure project in theory could help uh, spur loan demand, as you mentioned earlier, because interest rates are at historic low um and if it employs a lot of people there could be a lot more people who are looking for loans which will help banks in the long term because they're the people who give out loans
1: right i mean w- w- you know when you're thinking about it from the perspective of a bank one of the issues that they've faced over the past, basically over the past eight years since the financial crisis is that, given the uncertainty and given kind of the lack of confidence in the economy, there hasn't been a lot of um, investments. And in, businesses have reduced the amount of investments they are making. And kind of a flip side of this is that you know I don't know how much you follow this, but businesses have been buying back so much stock over the past few years. And the reason they're doing that is because they're not they're taking the money that they would otherwise be in, making in investments. And because they don't feel like there's going to get the return on those investments and then they're instead buying back stock. Well, that doesn't do anything for the economy. but if there is going to be the stimulative impact on the economy through this fiscal expense through these fiscal expenditures and these other things, well that would presumably increase confidence in businesses. And if you increase confidence in businesses, that's going to increase the, the possibility that they're going to invest. And when businesses invest, one of the things they need to do is they need to borrow money. So what that would do is that would increase demand for loans and loans are the principal product that banks sell. So if more if there's a higher demand for that product, banks are going to make more money. And the the other side of this is that on the consumer side. So let's say they get these things up and going. And this is a big if for a number of different reasons. But let's just assume that they're able to get these things up and going. That's going to increase consumer confidence. Okay? And if you increase consumer confidence, what happens there? Well, higher consumer confidence correlates into higher consumer spending. And then, how do consumers spend money? They spend money with their debit and credit cards principally, principally, right? I mean, like, not a lot of people operate in cash anymore. Well, banks make money from a higher velocity of consumer spending because they earn interchange income each time your debit or credit card is swiped. So, not only would you get a boost to loan demand as a result of these policies, but you would also get a boost. From interchange income on the consumer side.
0: Yeah. So I want you to I want I want to reiterate to our listeners that throughout all of that thing that we just said and everything that we're about to say, I don't know if you noticed, but we said if, could, potentially, possibly, a lot, and that's because this is wild speculation on our parts based on things that could maybe happen, but might not happen at all. Um, Talking about things that might actually happen, uh, Janet Yellen. Has um, kind of emphasized that she thinks that they are going to raise interest rates at the next meeting,
1: right? And and this kind of you know you can tie these two things together. You know the 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 idea that and again I think it's important to reiterate uh, once again what Gabby is saying that this is all theoretical. Nobody really has a very good grasp of whether or not Trump is you know what their position their precise positions are. Or even if we had a sense for a better sense for what the precise positions are, it remains to be seen if something like a trillion dollar stimulus package is going to make its way through a Republican-controlled Congress, given kind of their their historical aversion to big government and, and and debt. And the other piece is that it will depend on what that infrastructure spending will look like. The conversation, right? You know, the best way to do it, the most effective way to do it, is to do something like. You know, FDR did during the Great Depression just go out and build dams, go out and build bridges, go out and build roads. This, uh, President Eisenhower did the same thing when the government financed the construction of uh, the interstate highway system. But the conversation in the Trump administration, that at least again, and this all kind of remains to be seen what it's going to look like, is that they're going to do it, these infrastructure projects, through huge tax credits. Um that will be given to private companies that will then in in a sense, own those infrastructure projects. So we're talking more like toll roads as opposed to, say, um, improving an an airport or improving, you know, an interstate that runs through the middle of Wyoming or something like that. So so again, just just to reiterate, these are these are all hypothetical, but this is the reason that bank stocks have gone up is anticipation of these. But so if you get sorry, I'm kinda of going on here, Gabby, but just follow <laughs> me for one more second. If if these things do work, okay, and if the economy is kind of jolted out of its current malaise, what that will do, theoretically speaking, is to spur higher inflation. And one of the things we know, and so the, our, the most recent reading on inflation was 1.6%, and that was in October. Well, the Federal Reserve is looking for a 2% inflation rate. And once we get near or, at the, or to that point, or the economy is headed in a you know, fast enough trajectory to that point, the Federal Reserve will then feel comfortable raising interest rates. And we've talked about this, you know, kind of ad nauseum on this show, because it's such an important thing for banks. Once interest rates go up, banks are going to make a lot more money because, again, they sell loans and higher interest rates correlate into higher prices for loans. And I just
0: want to put out there, they're going to make a lot, a lot more money. Um, Bank of America has said that if rates go up by 100 basis points, they would have an extra $5.3 billion, um, which is basically an extra quarter worth of revenue for them, which is crazy. Um, Wells Fargo has uh, said $2.8 billion and Citi has said $2 billion for them. That, that's a lot of money. <laughs> it's not yeah. it's an insubstantial sum.
1: It's a very material amount. And, it, and it's worth just briefly touching on why that's the case. If you have a bank like Bank of America and JP Morgan Chase, they have something, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of deposits. That they use to finance the loans that they make, but those deposits, a lot of those deposits don't earn, don't they? Don't have to pay any interest on them because they're just in checking accounts, right? So as, if interest rates go up, they'll just earn more money on those loans, but they won't have to pay any more for their liabilities. So it's it's just it just it's just a great thing for banks when interest rates uh, head higher.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the next thing that that uh, the, the, the Trump has talked about on um, the campaign trail. Um, and actually interestingly, he's talked about it in different ways uh, depending um, on where on what portion of the campaign trail we look at. Uh, but there has been a lot of talk of dismantling Dodd-Frank. Um, and I think that that has been the major <laughs> um, push behind the bank stocks going up. Uh, and Dodd-frank, just to remind our listeners was um, a bill that was passed post financial crisis that uh, heavily regulated the banks. Um, and insisted that they had a certain amount of liquidity and a certain amount of capital um, capital ratios and stress tests for the banks. Um, and uh, as part of it, the Volcker Rule prohibited banks from proprietary trading. And we're going to get into all of this. But uh, the, the Dodd Frank, um, or Dodd Frank has basically been governing bank, banks since when did it pass? 2010. 2010. Um, so this is this has basically been bank's reality for the last six years. Um, so there has been kind of conflicting information from the Trump camp on how they would actually go about dismantling Dodd Frank, like whether they would leave provisions of it behind, whether they would get rid of it entirely. Um, but uh, there has been some some noise that they are interested in. Replacing Dodd Frank with the Financial Choice Act, which is um, put forth by a Republican congressman named uh, Henserling, and one of the one of the big things that they'd want to get rid of are the capital liquidity rules. Getting rid of the capital liquidity rules could let the banks make a lot more money.
1: Yeah, that that that's right. So let me put this into historical context. So anytime you have, or at least the last two times, we've had very serious economic downturns so I mean I'm talking like the biggest ones right the Great Depression in 1930s the financial crisis in 2008. what you always see is that you see before that what happens is generally the industry when you think about the power allocation between the industry and the regulators, going into these things you have this these deregulatory fervors and the industry gains more and more power vis-a-vis regulators. but then these things happen and then you have this public backlash. And so then what happens is that pendulum of power swings all the way over to the regulators, and then the regulators have a ton more power than the industry does. And that's where we're at right now, that pendulum has swung. But the issue, and in full disclosure, I'm a Democrat, but the Democrats, when they went with Dodd-Frank and when the regulators came in, and started passing the rules underlying Dodd Frank. They pushed things really, really far. And if you listen to any bank CEO, credible bank CEO that really knows what they're doing, and is really interested both in their bank and in the in the United States uh, of America. They all talk about how heavy-handed regulations have been since the financial crisis. Crisis. So what Trump's team is basically saying is that look, you know, we're going to come in. We're going to quote unquote dismantle Dodd Frank. So, they're going to swing that regulatory pendulum back more to either way back to the industry, you know, where the industry then has more power, or at least closer to the center. And you know, there are a number of different ways that this will help banks. But if you're thinking about it on the revenue side, to the point you just made, Gabby, this the really big benefit, I mean, and this is a huge benefit, will come through a reduction or a relaxing of capital and liquidity standards. So what does that mean? So that means so banks hold a certain amount of capital about every for, on a typical bank, a bank holds basically $1 in equity versus10 dollars that they borrow to then invest into assets. Well, if you increase the amount of capital they have to hold relative to their assets, you're going to decrease the return that shareholders will earn on that equity, right? Because higher leverage corresponds to higher profits and also higher risk, right? Well, these 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 um, proposals, and particularly Jeb Hensarling, who's a who's a Texas, who's a member of the House of Representatives, a Republican from Texas, he's coming out with this Financial Choice Act that says, look. All of these really complicated, really burdensome capital rules that have been passed in the wake of the financial crisis. Let's simplify it with a, a slightly higher capital ratio, but it's it's not risk weighted, which would mean that banks would be free to invest the money and ba- invest their assets in basically in, in in whatever type of assets they want to invest in, irrespective in to risk. And the other, thing, which would mean that you know, if you're able to, if you as a bank, you're able to invest in higher risk assets. You're going to generate a higher return, and in the same uh, kind of on, along the same lines, Henslinger's proposal, the Financial Choice Act, comes out and says, "Look, so long as banks meet this kind of very simple, but this much more simplified capital standard, they will be free from the liquidity rules under Dodd Frank." And what that would mean is that that would kind of further boost a bank's ability to, as opposed to invest a whole bunch of money in cash. Or low yielding government securities that basically carry no risk and reallocate that money over into higher yielding loans, which would then uh, boost their bottom lines.
0: Right. And so Dodd Frank put this all into place, like post financial crisis, right? Where um, people were worried about there being another potential run on the banks, right? Um, They were worried about the banks failing because they didn't have enough capital to back up bad bets that they had made, which is why there are such stringent requirements in Dodd Frank. You know, Henserling and potentially, I'm not saying for sure, but potentially the Trump team agree with the fact or agree with the idea that that this might have been too much for the banks. Um, Interestingly, uh, (laughs) there's been a lot of um, back and forth on the Volcker rule. I mentioned that earlier. The Volcker rule prohibits banks from proprietary trading, which basically um, is the banks acting like hedge funds. Um, And they were allowed to do that. Pre-financial crisis because of um, a repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act. Um, it's really interesting if they if they repeal that, that increases the risks of investing in banks a lot, but it also increases the bank's chances of making a lot more money.
1: So, and that this, so, and I think we can trace, we can kind of see where this this is a really important inconsistency that you that you're pointing out, Gabby. But and here's where it comes from. So again, Trump's team has not uh, provided uh, a lot of details in terms of what uh, it would look like if they were to dismant- quote-unquote dismantle Dodd-Frank. So the closest proxy that we have for what that might look like is that is Jeb Henshling's Financial Choice Act. And Jeb Hinchling was for a while being, uh, it was rumored that he was being considered for to be the treasury secretary and then there was also conversation in the media that tr- members of Trump's team were saying were were in favor of a lot of the things that Hinshling was saying so that's kind of where that connection comes from and it was it's in Hinshling's Financial Choice Act where it says that one of the things that they would do is to get rid of the vocal rule which would then to, to what you, as you explained allow banks to then go back and act like hedge funds and proprietary trade, basically do whatever they want in the markets.
0: But, But interestingly, interestingly, Trump has also said that he would be in favor of putting the Glass-Steagall Act back, of unrepealing the Glass-Steagall Act of whatever whatever you want to call it, whatever method they would want to go through, and bringing back the Glass-Steagall Act basically makes getting rid of the Volcker rules null. You know, right. it. I'm. Mm, mm. <laughs> I mean, it's. It's very confusing, and I think that that is something that you'll see in a lot of news coverage. Is that, a we don't know a lot. B the things that have been said are confusing because we don't know a lot. Um, and C we're just going to have to wait and see <laughs> what happens. But um, do you want to talk a little bit more about Glass Steagall?
1: Yeah. So yeah, and then and then I'll bring up one more point. So Glass, what Glass Steagall is, is it. it, This was implemented in the in during the Great Depression, and what it did is it said, look, if you're going to be a commercial bank that has insured deposits, you can't also run an investment bank, and a part of an investment bank is a trading operation. So to Gabby's point, you know. The Volcker Rule says a bank can't run trading operations, but the Glass-Steagall Act says you can't run any type of type of thing that's an investment act. So there is inconsistency between these in, between these two positions. The one final thing that could really um, help banks in terms of you know this kind of conversation around deregulation. Is that you know these stress tests that we've talked about on the show multiple times in the past that banks have to go through every year? Well, part of the, to basically see if they are able to you know survive an economic downturn akin to the financial crisis, or even actually worse when you can look at the <laughs> hypothetical scenarios under that that they're applied.
0: Sorry, I'm just laughing because you said that all so fast.
1: Yeah, sorry.
0: <laughs> um, but yes, um, continue the, the stress so, tests.
1: Yeah. So part of the stress tests is that the Federal Reserve under the Dodd Frank Act. And that's where the power-to-stress test banks come from. Okay? The Federal Reserve was given a veto power over bank capital plans. And what that means is that when a bank wants to raise its dividend or it increase the amount of shares it buys back, it has to basically ask the Federal Reserve for permission to do so. Well, under Hensling's proposal, they basically get rid of that veto power. And so what that would mean for a bank like Bank of America who has had its dividend request denied I believe two times in, the, in over, over the past 6 years by the Federal Reserve that would give Bank of America effectively the ability to double its dividend in 2017 or 2018 but still pay out the same percentage of its earnings each year as as well as Fargo JP Morgan Chase does and and, and this, basically the same is true for Citigroup which has also had its dividend uh, dividend hikes uh, denied on multiple occasions over the past few years. So when you add all of these things together, and again, the, all these things are big ifs, and we don't really know exactly how this is all going to go down. But if these things go through, um, I mean, banks are just going to make a ton more money.
0: Yeah. The other thing to keep in mind is if Dodd Frank is repealed, and there's a lot, there's a there's a much less uh, a much lesser regulatory burden on banks. Um, banks are. Going to be able to spend a lot less money on that, um, and that's something that, uh, for example, I don't know if you remember that New York Community Bank um, tease that we were treated to for a few years, where they were just like hovering right underneath the mark where Dodd Frank would 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 um, would apply to them, um, and they were waiting until they could make a big enough acquisition that it would be worth it for them to pay all the extra money they would have to pay and um, regulatory management. Um, type stuff. Uh, that would that would go away. Banks could spend that money on something else on loans or whatever it is that they wanted to spend the money on. And while that might not be as big of a push for bank profits as some of these other things that we were talking about with Dodd-Frank, it would it would definitely help and we would I don't know how that would end up affecting um, bank mergers and acquisitions or people starting new banks, but it would it would be interesting, I guess, to see how that would play out. Um so We've talked a lot about how this could help banks. Um, there are some downsides, which I don't know that the market is 100% pricing in, which is obviously getting rid of regulation increases the risk of banks, so we don't know what that would mean in terms of um, long-term, just how the banks would function if there was another crisis, if there's less regulation. Now we have a better idea. I mean, you can never predict 100%. But with less regulation, we wouldn't really know as much about how banks would be prepared to react to another crisis. Um, additionally, uh, the Trump campaign has mentioned potentially erecting pretty significant trade barriers. Um, and if they do that, that could potentially hurt our economy, which could potentially hurt hurt <laughs> banks. Um, again, this is the episode of If and could. But eh, we, well, We'll see. Um, the other thing to think about is that a lot of these legislators that are advocating for less regulation, a lot of them are also kind of against bailing out banks. So if there is another crisis, we could potentially decide not to bail out the banks the, the second or third time, whatever time we're on. Um, so it's I don't know, it's, it's really an interesting juxtaposition of ideas. Um, do you have anything you want to add to that, Maxfield? about downsides?
1: I mean, the only thing I would say is that all the conversation right now, that is, most of the conversation at least, coming from the Trump team is that they're basically talking about just adding oxygen to a fire, okay? And a fire is the economy, and it's an important fire that you need, and our economy needs more oxygen. But you can take that too far. You can't add too much oxygen to a fire, right? And And if you were to, do that, and you get into this situation where you have bubbles in assets or things like that, that then banks get into trouble, <clears throat> and that their government, let's say we you know, have another crisis. Now, I don't think another crisis is likely, because the risk managers in these firms, you know, the financial crisis of 2008 is so fresh in their minds. But let's just hypothetically, you know, this is all hypotheticals, let's talk about it hypothetically. If that were to happen, and if you have a lot of dogmatic people in Congress, like Henzerling and, and, and these other folks, and they are really against bailing out banks, and you have a big bank that needs, gets into a situation where it needs to be bailed out. Well, even though that's unsavory you know, on the individual level, because you're basically bailing out these people who make millions of dollars running these banks, the one thing that we learned in the Great Depression <clears throat> was that when you have a normal recession, followed by a bunch of bank failures, that is what causes Depressions, and that's the reason why, even under a Republican administration in 2008, the George W. Bush administration, when those banks got into trouble, those guys moved in and bailed them all out because they knew they had read history. They knew what happens when you let that type of thing happen. Well, if you get dogmatic and you don't, you're not practical about all these things, and you let a big bank fail. I mean, you, it, it can it can create an enormous amount of economic destruction. So, you know, the only thing I would say to Gabby's point is that, yeah, I mean, there is risk that does not seem to be being priced in right now. But that type of risk is certainly you know further down the line than any type of tonic um, that all these economic proposals would would offer to the economy right now.
0: Well, thank you, Maxfield. Um, I realize that this episode ran a little bit long. I'm sorry, Austin Morgan. I know I'm delaying you getting lunch. Um, to our listeners, we don't know what's going to happen, and I hope you didn't get the impression at all from this episode <laughs> that we that we are definitely predicting the future. I know that we have put in a lot of like disclaimers, and I just want to add one more final disclaimer, which is that we have to wait and see what's going to happen. Um, we just don't know, and we won't know until January, when the inauguration happens, and probably not for a long time after. Because there's one thing that living in DC has shown me it's that it takes a long time for things to move through Congress. So don't worry, we'll continue reporting on what happens. Um, I hope you found this episode interesting. and I would like to let you guys know that, as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. I know that talking about politics can bring the worst out in people, so please try and only write in if you have something that contributes to the conversation and not just anger. Um, Thank you to Austin Morgan, who I'm sure is very excited to eat lunch, as am I. He is a great producer, and thank you to everyone for joining us. I hope everyone has a great week.